Hi, I'm Patrick Pong, CEO and founder of Favro, and this is the Learn From Leaders podcast. The background to this show is that Favro customers are some of the most innovative companies in the world. Enterprises wanting to be more agile, software as a service companies scaling fast, and game developers and publishers wanting to master live ops. So we get to know some truly inspiring leaders in product development, marketing, operations, sales, executive management. And what we do here is that we interview them about leadership so we can all learn from them. Let's go. All right, this is uh, Learn From Leaders. Welcome to the podcast, um, Josiah and, uh, and Andrew. How's it going? Great, it's yeah. going pretty good. Thanks for having us. Uh, fantastic. Today, we will be discussing empowering game developers uh, you know, culturally and technologically. But before getting into that, we just need to know a little bit about your story you know, leading up uh, to, uh, to today. Uh, Josiah, do you want to go first? Sure. So my name is Josiah Keel. I am the CEO of Sprocket Games. My background is in software engineering. Started out my career at Oracle writing business software. And after about a year of that, I realized I really wanted to be making games. And so I shifted over to Riot Games in Los Angeles, where... I joined the League of Legends team right as it was taking off. And so the, the principal problems facing that team were scaling delivery of the game globally. I wrote a lot of automation software, infrastructure software, um, making it possible to deploy that game to Europe and China and all of the regions that we were expanding to at the time. I did that for about five years on League of Legends, scaled the game up through 100 plus million players. And then after working at a games company doing not game software, I decided to shift over to work on an actual game. So I worked on Riot's second game, that is Legends of Runeterra, where I took ownership of the game server and all the content development tools. I was the first engineer on the content team and then helped grow that team up through launch. And then uh, in about 2019, I left Riot and uh, went to Google where I went back to large-scale distributed systems, worked on global network infrastructure. Really great experience at Google, but after about three years, three years once again, I realized I really should be making games. So I called up a couple of friends who uh, I had worked with at Riot, uh, most particularly Nick Titley, um, and said, hey, what are you up to? Um, Nick was on a bit of a sabbatical at the time, and so I was like, well, what would you like to be up to if you were doing something? And ultimately, we landed on starting a studio. Two software engineers don't make a game studio, and so we recruited a third co-founder, Joe Greylock, who was design director of League of Legends at the time, brought them onto the project, and then started pitching Sprocket Games. About partway through the pitching process, we added a fourth co-founder, that is Raina Sweet, the senior most technical designer at Riot, and then landed a round of funding for, uh, led by Bitcraft, and here we are today, building our first game. Fantastic. You know, congrats on a you know, great, great journey and a successful you know, fundraise. And, and you know, Andrew, is uh, your journey similar or is it a, is it a different story? It's somewhat similar. Uh, my name is Andrew Wu. I am the head of production at Sprocket. I graduated university and I was also a software engineer. My first seven years of which was in Manhattan doing financial services software with companies like Goldman Sachs, DLJ, um, Credit Suisse. I did that for a good period of time, but it was destroying my soul. So I took a sort of took a hard left turn and participated in a volunteer around the world yacht race. Came back from that, decided if I was going to do that, I might as well try my hand at games. And my first job was at Obsidian Entertainment in April 2006. And I worked there for about two years, also as a C++ gameplay engineer, working on games like Neverwinter Nights 2. And then after about two years of that, I got headhunted by a little indie game company called Riot Games and joined them in April of 2008. 
and where I was also a C++ gameplay engineer working on the original game launch, AI, character scripting, things like that. I was an engineer for about six years at Riot and then switched to production and worked for another nine years as a producer on League until becoming sort of the, uh, the ops lead for the Motivations Initiative, which does a lot of the, uh, for League PC, which does a lot of the around game stuff. And then, so I was playing, I was playing Dungeons and Dragons with Joe Greylock, and they had left to start their own thing. And I was like, oh, you know, look me up when you get to about 30 people because probably that's when you'll need me as a producer because I don't actually do any, like, game development, making things anymore. And they said, sure. And I wasn't sure if they were being nice because I want to keep playing D&D with them and it's going to be awkward. But they reached out maybe in this February. And I was like, oh, they actually do want me to join. And I talked to the rest of the people, saw the game they were making. And I'm like, I, this, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. I need to try this, this thing. So that's how I... I left after 15 years of working on League PC at Riot to join Sprocket. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, you know, for, for the ones of you listening now, I should also say that this podcast episode is a little bit different from the typical ones because we're actually live uh, you know, here in LA. But I think in a way that's actually a little bit ironic that we're sitting here together recording this because you know, as, a, as a studio, you know, you're very much remote, right? Can you talk a little bit about how you're set up? Yeah, so because more than half the company is ex-Riot. We do have a bit of a center of gravity in Los Angeles, but from the beginning, we very explicitly wanted to be remote first, remote friendly. Part of that's just because hiring is one of the most difficult things that you can do when starting a studio and getting the right people in place early is really important. And being a small studio, our ability to like relocate and build a big fancy office and those sorts of things is much harder. And so with those things in mind, we're like, well, remote just makes the most sense and also, we already have some people on staff that are not in Los Angeles, and so do we try to convince them to come back to Los Angeles? Well, no, we'll just be remote. And that's actually worked out really well for us. And do you, uh, do you ever get together, you know, have some, uh, some meetups, or how do you do that? Yeah, so that's one thing that we know for a fact, and we don't want to just pretend is not a downside of being remote, is making interpersonal connections is just more difficult in a remote context. And at least twice a year, like currently our cadence is twice a year, we get the whole company together. We've been going to Los Angeles now because it's cheaper with most of the people being here, but in the future we'll move it around to different parts of the country and um, so that we can make sure that we get everybody in, in the same room at least a few times a year so that we can establish those connections and then coast off of those connections until the next meetup because that is something that's irreplaceable in an in-person context. Uh, cool. And um, the topic today is, you know, empowering uh, game developers culturally and technologically. And I, I actually took the title from uh, from an interview in that you were doing in VentureBeat in connection with uh, with a fundraise. And you actually said a lot of things uh, there that I thought was very interesting. You know, the, there was a lot of focus on not not only on building a cool game. It was also a lot of focus on what what kind of company and, and culture do we want to build. And I think you used the term developer-focused. Mm -hmm. Can you elaborate a little bit more, you know, both of you, on what, what does that mean? What is it that you want to achieve in terms of building, building a company which is a much better company to work in? Yeah, so that's, so I'll, I'll start off and then Andy can contribute a bit. So that's getting at the core of why Sprocket exists and why we didn't just go and join another studio as like principal developers or whatever it is. And that's because um, games are fundamentally a creative enterprise. Like, it's not just a matter of like building some software and getting the features out and getting them tested like you in a traditional tech company. 
so much creativity is required to make an excellent game. And creativity doesn't, uh, like, it's difficult to be creative when you're not in a safe environment. And so the whole point of Sprocket is to give that stable foundation so that when people are going to take risks in their life, it's not a risk showing up to work or showing like the things that they're working on or collaborating with their colleagues. The risks that they're taking are in the features that they make for the game or the new characters that they're creating or the new art that they're creating for the game. We want all of their, what I generally call the risk budget, we want that to be poured into their creative work rather than the rest of their life. And if you're spending all of that budget elsewhere, then you're not going to spend it at work. You're going to, you're going to take safe bets. I'm only going to do the things that I know are going to work. And we know from experience, many years of experience in the games industry, that you have to take lots of risks in order to find the next fun game. And so in order to maximize our chances for success, we need to make that safe, stable environment for game developers. I think from, the, from sort of my production point of view, there's sort of three main lenses that I look at how we want to think about the company, how we want to think about the product. There's the product lens, which is what are we making and why. Then there's the operational lens, which is how do we make it together. And then there's the emotional lens, which is how does it feel to work together and work on the thing that we're working on. And I feel like many of the places that I've worked get quite good at the product lens and the operational lens, but tend to neglect the emotional lens. And I think my hypothesis, which makes me, which is one of the things that made me so excited to come to Sprocket, is that I think fundamentally in our DNA, we want to experiment with what happens if we balance all three. And my hypothesis is, of course, that balancing all three will give us significantly better results than just over-indexing on your operational and product lenses. And so that, that emotional lens of how we show up for each other, building it in right from the beginning, that we're able to talk about our emotions, how we feel, generating that psychological safety is a, a major differentiator, I think, in the kind of company that we want to build right from the ground up. And with all the, like every single person we add sort of has that same attitude. Uh, can, can you share some examples of what this means in practice in terms of any, let's say, you know, rituals or, or you know, some training that you need to do uh, or, or, you know, just, just some practical examples of, you know, for, for a person, uh, starring at Sprocket, how will they notice that this is happening? I think some of the, a lot of our, our ceremonies, like we, we do a show and tell, for example, that's generally designed to be celebratory about the work that we're working on. We do it once a week. And so right from the beginning, the, the purpose of that ceremony is just look at the cool stuff that I did and everyone get, get excited and hyped about it. And so, but it's also a safe space where you can show anything, even if it's work in progress. And generally, people are very supportive of each other. And so that kind of ceremony is something that you don't necessarily see because it doesn't necessarily, it's like from an operational or product lens, it's kind of like, well, we're not evaluating, it's not like a sprint review, technically, where you're evaluating, does this meet the goals of the product owner? Or from operational lens, is this, did we get the velocity we wanted, right? It's about generating that, creativity and safe space right from there. And so I think that's one of the things. I think we're also just much more, especially in a remote sense, when I've, I think I've only been in the company maybe two, three months, I've gotten more like DM direct feedback from people with positive feedback, specific positive feedback, not just like pat on the back, great job, right? Like you did this thing, a specific thing, and I thought it was great. And I think Having just seeing how people, that's part of people, the, the culture, seeing people do it and then myself doing it and then it just spreads. 
I think those are two examples of like very specific things that we do that that lean into the emotional lens a lot more than other places that I've I've worked. Yeah. And to, to expand on that a little bit, even our in-person meetups that at this point we're doing on a six-month cadence, we very specifically don't work at those meetups. If like that's partly to our thesis of like all work that we do should be able to be done remotely, and if it's difficult, we need to fix that rather than just do that when we meet up. But then also because those events are very specifically designed to cater to that third facet that Andy was talking about of make sure that we build up the connection between people so that when they work on the other like product and operational sides of the company, they have all of that reinforced by the emotional connection that they have with their other peers. And so like we're, we're very particular about making sure that like we're spending as much attention on those things as we are the others. How does this affect uh, recruitment? Uh, so recruiting has been one of the easiest things that we've done, which is not something you hear from startups very often. Like, I mean, till date, I think we've only ever had one offer rejected. If you'd talked to me a couple of months ago, I would have said we've had a 100% success rate, but you can't get them all. And so it's like, we're at the point where like, we don't put much focused effort into recruiting because we decide who we want to go after and then we go and talk to them. They get excited and then they join us. Because the things that we're addressing, I think, much of the rest of the games industry kind of feels in their bones, like when they've been working, like especially people that have been in the industry for decades, they're like, oh, right, this is something I'm missing. And if, if Sprocket can pull this off, this is going to be a really great place to work. And that has proved successful over the, like the, the history of the company. It's only one year right now, but it's like everybody that we've talked to is just super excited about what we're doing. And the conversations we have now are, we would love to have you join us, but we actually don't have slots today, so please can you sign up for after our next round of funding so that we can then bring you in. Um, like, so when we're raising our seed round, we actually had VCs pass on us because they didn't think we could recruit. Now a year on, recruiting is probably our, our biggest strength. Do you feel like you are, when you're formulating a profile, you know what you're looking for? Do you feel like it's a bit different from when you have been doing this in the past at different companies? Yeah, it, it is a bit different, partly because we need to make sure that people will operate well in a remote context. But then also, like in my time at Riot, culture was super important. And so the culture interviews were actually a, a difficult part of the interview there. Uh, we've taken that basically a step further and have designed our rubrics around both culture and perspective in addition to craft. Like craft is sort of a, the barrier to entry. It's like, can you do the job? Culture means like how good are you at collaborating and do you fit in with the rest of the company? But then also perspective of like, do you bring something new to the company that we don't have already? And that's gotta be personal experience or other things. We, we make sure that the team that we're crafting is really well-rounded, but then also collaborates extremely well and of course is excellent at their craft. You wanna add? I don't know if I have anything more to add on that. I'm low. We are at the cap for how many more people we can hire in this round. And so since I'm like one of the last hires, we haven't, I haven't been doing a lot of active recruiting. I could talk a little bit about how well the pitch worked on me. Yeah, but, that would be awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like it was, a, it was unique in that I already knew, I knew a lot of the people that had already been working there. And the core theses of the company, which is what if we lean harder into the emotional lens? What if we lean harder into the developer experience? Can we, if we balance that against our other things, is that going to generate a stronger, get a better product for players? Because really, in the end, that's what we're here to make a game, not like have everyone feel great. I mean, we're hoping that by everyone feeling great, we'll make the company, but that's the thing that we're testing. And I didn't feel necessarily that I could 
have enough leverage to run that experiment at the speed at which we're running it at Riot. And it was definitely an experiment. I was like, I need to participate in this one. So that was one big thing. But the other one of the theses is around, can one of the hardest things to do is generate content for the company, for a game. And we're going for a slightly more content-heavy type game. So can we solve that with better tooling in a way that's not just throw more bodies at this problem? Um, and if we, can solve, if we can solve those two things, and both of those things are true, it's going to be something spectacular that's different than any place I've worked. And I felt like that was an experiment that I had to jump onto. And part of it was just because we had some, we've hired so many talented people, especially from Riot, it did not really feel like that big of a risk for me because it was like, oh, I feel like I'm kind of going to a Riot R&D team. That, I have friends at Riot where the, the primary team is up in San Francisco, but they live in L.A. And so it's really not that different because that person is just dialing into their remote team in San Francisco. So, and, and I will say, really, that's what it feels like right now, is that I am at a Riot R&D startup with a little bit more control over the direction of the game and the direction of the culture with significantly higher equity upside. But like it does not, strangely, does not feel like a risk to me. Um, cool. Besides, how, how do you think long term with, uh, with recruitment? After next funding round, you need you know, more people. Do you think it will spread even more geographically, maybe even outside of the US? Or what's your thoughts there? So we're always open to people around the world. And in fact, from an operational standpoint, like a company operational standpoint, we're prepared to branch out into other countries when opportunities come up. In fact, we've had discussions with people in Japan and in Canada and like we didn't end up moving forward with these people. But like we're always open to these things. For us, we have long conversations about how do multiple time zones impact the like the the ability for people to execute and those sorts of things. There's nothing like unique to the United States that says like we must be here other than that happens to be where our networks are and like a lot of us are ex-Riot. Well, Riot's an American company, so there you go. And so like we, for at least the immediate future, we do tend to prefer like North American time zones. But when, we're, when we grow and we can have like enough people in another time zone that they're not like completely bottlenecked on a 12 hour like communication cycle, then it's completely reasonable that we expand much, much more broadly. And some of our, like the other portfolio companies of investors that we have, like they, they've blazed some of the trails of like, well, we've got a pod in France and we've got a pod in, in India and these other places that it's like, it's, it's totally a doable thing. Something I, I would like to ask more about, you know, you mentioned uh, risk taking and you used the term, I think, risk budget. Mm -hmm. And with an organization where, where people feel safe, that risk budget can go to what you actually create. And yeah. that's probably going to be potentially much more awesome. I, I really like that idea. And, and have you already seen results of that? Have you had moments where you're like, oh, wow, that's cool. And that would most likely not have happened if, if we didn't do it this way. Well, one of the things that we've done a few times throughout the development of our game is gone into like isolated, essentially game jam cycles where we have people like it's, it's completely undirected. There's a general topic of like add more things to this facet of the game, but whatever it is you add is completely up to you. And we've seen some of those like people have done some pretty significant experiments on that front. And they, they just come up and show it. And sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. And even when they're not, people are still happy that they tried it. 
and like nobody feels bad after the fact. They're just like, oh, I learned a lot about Unreal Engine or I learned a lot about scripting that now, like, even if we don't keep this piece of content that I made, it was still worth the investment. And nobody says, oh, well, you shouldn't have made that because that was bad. And so like, so those sorts of dynamics are really encouraging. And that's, that is a result of that sort of foundation of like, one of the ways that it manifests is like, we want to judge people by how good their good ideas are and not how bad their bad ideas are. Because everybody knows that most ideas are bad. And we need to iterate through all of the bad ideas to get to the good ideas. And so creating an environment where that's safe allows people to go into these game jams and just try a bunch of things and we just know 60 or 70 percent of them are going to be bad and that's okay and because if, if people are too afraid to try those things then we might not get that remaining 30 percent good ideas awesome how do you do it after work when you're fully remote i mean you mentioned that mm. you get togethers and that yep. you're focusing on really the relationship building there that makes a lot of sense but uh, you mentioned some ceremonies before. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about ceremonies, including do you have any after-work ceremonies in, in an after-work environment? I can say yes from a favorite point of view. We play a lot of games. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's one thing that I'm, on that topic, is one thing that I'm actually very careful about is I, as the CEO, don't initiate those activities because I don't want anybody to feel like leadership is telling them to do a thing and therefore they must show up after work. Like, I don't want anybody to compromise dinner with their family because the CEO wanted to play Baldur's Gate. Like, it's just like, it's from my perspective, it might just be a friendly social thing, but from their perspective, leadership is telling them this is an activity that then they must show up to do. So in my position, I actually don't do that very often, but that's intentional because I don't want that sort of extra pressure to filter down to, to, to employees that it's just it's undue pressure like because in my perspective it's not gaining them anything from their perspective they're like well what if i don't and so that is something that i'm careful about as for the rest of the company i actually don't know how much they play games together yeah i'm certainly not like i have i'm unique in the company is that i'm i think i'm the only person with kids and so like most of my after work is doing kid stuff yeah and, and part of the thesis so. of the company is that when you're done with work you should just be done and like because one thing that I've learned from endurance sports, which is something I do a lot of, is recovery is as much part of training as the training itself. And if you don't get adequate recovery, then the training is going to be bad. And then it takes longer to recover after that. And then you get into this cycle of like unproductive training and poor recovery. Uh, the same applies to work. Where, and so I want people to be able to completely disconnect when they finish their workday and then reconnect when the next day starts. And then the same goes for the weekend. Like, we're very particular about only having people be connected during business hours and making sure that if you do need to send somebody a message off hours, you don't trigger their notifications and you do scheduled messages as much as possible. Like we're, we try to keep business constrained to the core hours as much as possible. And it's very rare that we'll have an emergency or like an off hours meeting. Like if I have to talk to an investor in Singapore, I'm sorry, the hours are just going to be late. But it's like outside of those sorts of circumstances, we're very particular about letting people properly recover so that they can come back the next day firing on all cylinders. Andrew, I heard from other companies that are, are you know, remote first that, you know, when, when you have a family situation, it, it, it's very good because there's a certain flexibility and it, it's easier to feel like you're, you're fully part of, of work. For example, in, I don't know, I'm Swedish, so there's a lot of, you know, the daycare, leaving a daycare, picking up a daycare and those kind of things. And, and then you're going to have some, you know, who don't have family and they, you know, they might be, you know, crunching through harder in the evening and that can create some frictions and, you know, with remote first and you might avoid that. Is that how you feel you know, about it? And 
it might even be a recruitment strategy in the future that people that want to make awesome games, they also want to be able to balance that with family life. It's definitely like, I'll say that at Riot, there were definitely more sponsored event type things that were after work. You know, I think what they took us to up to San Francisco for the the League of Legends World World Championship game finals like last year, and it was it's great if you don't have kids, but there's I'm either buying three more tickets to a thing that's a, to a sold out event esports event, or I am not going. And so like it definitely, I raised that, and I'm like I don't expect necessarily you to accommodate me, but like when because we are full remote and we're not doing those kind of events. It's great if you don't have kids, but it's just like I can't, I can't partake of this particular perk. And so that, definitely for the time I've work, been working at Sprocket, it, does, it feels like there's definitely an accommodation for me in that there aren't all these really great events that are being planned that I can't take advantage of because I just can't put in those extra work hours. So that certainly has been a benefit. But there's also the benefit of having those events too. And so I think, like, I think that's a thing that as we get bigger, we're going we're, we're gonna to want to think about because... You know, even though it accommodates my particular situation, I think for the majority of the company that can make those types of events, those are also fun. And so I think we want to be able to balance it out across all the different, you know, types of things that people want to be able to participate in. Uh, cool. One more question on, on, on scaling, you know, becoming more people. What's your biggest concern around that? What's the thing you're most afraid of that you would like to, that you're you know, planning for or preparing for handling as, as you grow bigger? Like one thing that's a very clear, I don't know if threat's the right word, but something, it's an impact that we will see as we scale is that culture is just a very difficult thing to scale. And that, that's always true. And so it's the, when we're hiring one or two people at a time, we can be very particular and make sure that we check all of the boxes and that they are espousing all of the values that we do at Sprocket and that they're going to be able to sock it right in and continue to carry the, the torch forward. When we're hiring five or ten people at a time as we scale up, that's going to be a lot more difficult because, like, am I going to be able to do all of the, like, you know, cultural interviews and maintain consistency across all of them? I mean, that's going to be a big ask for me. That's all I'm going to do. That's going to be my full-time job. Uh, maybe that's correct at that point, but then somebody has to deal with the rest of the company. So that's going to be a lot more difficult. So that's something I think about a lot is how do we scale out even just the vetting process of making sure that the people we bring in will fit. And that also plays into our overall strategy of like, like video games are software and we should treat them as such. We want to build better tools rather than scaling to large numbers of people. And that culture facet is a big part of it. It's not just that in order to build a next generation game, you need to have better tools, which we do believe. But in order to scale an organization culturally, it's easier if you just hire fewer people and you can have a better culture and maintain that, that creative culture that we value so much at Sprocket if we build better tools and empower fewer people overall. Like, I don't want to have to hire 400 content developers. I would rather hire maybe 100 of them and give them better tools that they can then do the work of 400 because that has the side effect of scaling culture to that level is easier. That makes a lot of sense. And, and um, speaking about tools, I, I do want to take the opportunity to ask about you know, fa favor as well. I had a fantastic experience this morning in a meeting. It was a new customer that came in and was asking, like, how do you know about us? And they were like, we're an entirely new studio, but very rapidly scaling to, we're going to scale up to more than 100 people in a very, very short time. 
And they were like, well, we thought that, you know, there must be something better than G-Routers. We started to ask around, hey, what are you guys using? So they were basically just calling their friends over here, here in the U.S. And, and he was telling me that, well, a surprisingly large amount were really speaking very highly about favor. So we thought, we really need to check into this kind of thing. And, and that's how they came on board. But, but what's your story? You know, how and why did you come on board with Favro? I'm super curious about the story there as well. Yeah, so the origin of our evaluating Favro is very similar to that, where, I mean, we've used Jira and other bug tools at, at various companies. Certainly Riot is, a, is an Atlassian shop. And like when we're doing our own thing and we, like, we have a whole thesis of better tools, it's like, well, we should actually evaluate them and not just use what we're comfortable with. And so similarly, I asked around and Favor was one that kept popping up as at least check this one out because there's got to be something there. Even people that didn't use it or had their, their company used something else, they were, they were they're always curious about it. And I was like, everybody has their different opinions, but Favor was a consistent of make sure you look at them to make sure that they're worth, that they, like make sure that, to see if they'll fit because and that was very consistent across a lot of the studios that I talked to. And so some were actually using it and were happy with it, and some kind of wished they were using it, which was interesting to me. Cool. <clears throat> I think from my point of view, like, as, as the person who's going to be, like, who is the most hands-on in our work management system, I have, as Josiah mentioned, Riot is a Atlassian shop. I've been in Jira for 13 years. I Favreau was our was being used at Riot for a little while, and then they bought Trello, and then Enterprise something, something. And they, they, we went with Trello for that more similar look and feel. And so when I, I knew what Jira was strong at. And what I found most difficult in my experience with Jira is sort of that messy middle where you get a backlog of about 100 things, and then Jira just falls apart, basically, from my ability, from given my capability of using Jira, like Jira structure, Jira roadmap, none of those things really do that, you know, three to six month product strategy horizon very well. And talking with the people that I've been working with already, it's like they hadn't, since, since I stopped working at Riot three months ago, they haven't solved that. And then I had that demo with, with you and I could immediately see how I would, I could get Favreau to get that three month window, you know, three to six month planning window in a much better way than, than Jira would be. And, you know, it's, it's very, it was very easy for me to set up and it was very easy for the team to get into. One of the interesting things that I noticed as soon as people started onboarding into Favro was a little bit of shock at how quickly we transitioned out of our old sort of hack together ticketing system into Favro. It's like, we just told everybody, be like, okay, transfer everything from the old system to the new one. And all of a sudden, blam, it was all there. And it wasn't like, oh, so I'm trying to make tickets. How do I do this thing? Or what button do I click? It just happened, which meant at least the tool is intuitive enough for people to get in there and start creating things, which was really nice. Uh, awesome. And um, you know, as you know, we haven't stopped. We, we continue to develop as well. Right now, it's been a lot of focus for us on the new you know, dashboard functionality, which gives business intelligence. And we aren't sitting in our corner in Sweden doing this. We're really been collaborating with studios. And the biggest customers we, we have today are, have more than a, a thousand users. So hopefully, you know, taking what you said, you shouldn't scale to a thousand people because then you haven't done exactly what you said. Now you were going to do, <laughs> but to the size that you're looking at, I think this will gonna it's gonna work fine. And um, this has been a, an awesome conversation. Uh, there's a lot of things that you're doing that I think are inspiring, and I think you're kind of leading the way. I, I think and hope that we'll see an increasing amount of new students thinking this kind of way. Congrats on on, on taking the leadership. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And uh, yeah, see you later. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, you know what to do. Share it in your social media 
so more people can take part and learn. And one more thing, check out Favro Academy on favro.com for many more learnings. Thanks for tuning in.